Hello, welcome to my podcast, Post-Imperial China. This is episode one, beginning. When I was thinking about a title for this podcast series, my first inclination was to call it simply The Republic of China. Simple and sensible, right? Well, as I got further into my material, I realized the title of Republic of China was too simple and not too sensible. You see, the nearly 40 years between the fall of the Chinese imperial Qing dynasty to the communist takeover of China is complex, confusing, ambiguous, and cannot be categorized into a simple title such as the Republic of China. The time period I want to cover I'm going to call it roughly from 1910 to 1949. There are history sources that place those years that I'm talking about as 19, between 1912 to 1949. You see, even the dating of the period is open to debate. Sometimes the era is stated as the transition period from imperialism to modernization. The period, however you wish to frame it, does link the imperial Qing dynasty with both the resettled nationalist republican government in China and communist China. The connection helps me to better understand, and I hope my listeners to better understand, the imperial Qing, the imperial Qing government, and what came after it, even if it took forty years to appear. I am not in this podcast going to repeat in any detail what happened to the Qing dynasty. If you like, you can listen to my first season podcast series on the rise and fall of the Qing dynasty. In learning about this period of China, that is the subject of this podcast, the thing that stands out to me, and I think to anyone else learning about the period, is the foreign influence in China. There is no doubt that the influence or interference contributed to the issues and problems China faced after the fall of the Qing dynasty. That, however, has to be taken in context. It's all relative, right? Foreign influence also had a large role in the decline of the Qing dynasty. So I have to be careful here. It is important that I explain that there was a distinction 
between the foreign influence that was in China before the Republic of China or during the Qing Dynasty and what came post-Qing Dynasty. My point, if not obvious by now, is that foreign influence or interference in China was nearly always present. And it particularly began after the disastrous opium wars in the middle third of the 19th century during the Qing Dynasty. At that time, treaty ports were part of the settlement of the nations that were involved in China at that time. The ports were, in essence, war treasure or war booty. It forced China to open their sea and river ports for trading. The treaty ports were a source of great wealth and power for the four nations that used them. They were also, however, a source of great resentment, humiliation, and anger for the Chinese. Typically, the treaty ports forced China to forswear their sovereignty and autonomy at these ports over such things as business trade regulations, duties and tariffs, and admittance of foreign people. By 1912, there were 92 treaty ports in China, a shocking amount. But treaty ports were not the only source of foreign influence in China during the Qing Dynasty. Another were leaseholds and settlements. For those, think about Japan, Russia, and Germany. More on leaseholds in a little bit. All of these arrangements were seen by most Chinese as a, as a sign that the Manchu leaders were weak and ineffective. Along with foreign invasions during the last century of the Qing era, as well as corruption and bad policies by the Manchu leaders, it should come to no one's surprise that revolution was coming. Furthermore, in the late 19th century, Japan and Russia fought over Manchuria, which is part of northeast China. After the Russo-Japanese War ended in 1905, Japan virtually owned and controlled Manchuria. After nearly a century of unequal treaties imposed on China by foreign nations, the talk of revolution and overthrow of the Qing government would surprise no one. The foreign influence in China after the collapse of the Qing dynasty was largely something different, except in the case of Japan, than what I just covered. Two of the most influential protagonists of the late Qing dynasty and early post-imperial era were Yuan Shikai and Dr. Sun Yat-sen. Aside from the young emperor, Puyi, the last Qing emperor, the one that abdicated, no other persons were as influential as those two. For those of you that listened to my first podcast series on the Qing dynasty, my discussion on Yuan Shikai and Sun Yat-sen 
will be a reintroduction. Yuan Shikai had organized and led the modernization of the Chinese Imperial Army for the Qing government after the Sino-Japanese War in 1895. Up to around 1909, he enjoyed a high status within the Qing Imperial government. After the death of one of his, one of his most powerful allies, Sishi, or the Empress Dowager, he fell out of favor, and he retired a virtual recluse. But, as China descended into chaos immediately before and during the Xinhai Revolution in 1911, many in China believed and supported Yuan Shikai, that he was the right person to unify China at that great hour of time, and he would lead the nation during this crisis. He had a reputation as a strong personality. He came out of retirement. His military connections would help. They would help bring about the, about the conclusion of the Qing government. And after the abdication of the child emperor Puyi, the nascent republic appointed Yuan Shikai to be the first president of the Republic of China in 1912, replacing the provisional president, Sun Yat-sen. Yuan Shikai, and I am not quite done talking about him, I want to say for now, his reputation is not generally good. He was considered a strong, but a corrupt leader. Generally denounced in modern histories as a traitor, a poor politician, and a dictator. To the Chinese nationalist at that time, he's seen as betraying the 1911 revolution and that he usurped the republic. You will learn later about some of the details of this. For the old Qing imperial regime, he was also seen as a traitor to them. The other protagonist early on in this period was Dr. Sun Yat-sen, or his given name, Sun Yixian. He is considered by some to be the father of modern China. He began his efforts to overthrow the Qing government and replace it with a republican form of government around the time of China's humiliating defeat to the Japanese in the Sino-Japanese War of 1895. At that time, he founded his first revolutionary group called the Xing Zhonghui. Then in 1905, he founded the Tong Minghui, which was a resistance group and movement headquartered in Tokyo, Japan. They later merged into the more familiar Guomindang, or also known as the Chinese Nationalist Party. The English translation for Guomindang is National Citizen Party. And as you will see, that is an appropriate name. Sun Yat-sen led the opposition that fought several unsuccessful rebellions and stirred civil unrest in China. It is noteworthy that before the 1911 revolution, Yuan Shikai and Sun Yat-sen were not really allies. The two seemed to not like each other. 
Sometimes, however, events and circumstances make unexpected associations. These two protagonists made a pact that would have enormous consequences. On January 1, 1912, Sun Yat-sen was inaugurated as the first president of the Provisional Republic of China. Remember, though, at that time, the Manchus still ruled China. But not for long. After Emperor Puyi's abdication in February of 1912, everything changed, and and it set in motion a cascade of events. Starting at Wuhan, China, the Xinhai Revolution began in the autumn of 1911. The revolution would end the Qing dynasty and imperial China. On January 1, 1912, several Chinese provinces declared independence and elected Sun Yat-sen as their provisional president. He declared the creation of the Republic of China and Nanjing was named the provisional capital. The Kuomintang, or the Nationalist, which were then led by Sun Yat-sen, published a provisional constitution for the nascent New Republic. There were still provinces, however, in China that did not support the New Republic. And to get their support, and to unify China, would require someone that might be able to bring the other provinces in line. And that person is, of course, or was, of course, Yuan Shikai. Sun Yat-sen and Yuan Shikai made a deal that Sun Yat-sen would resign as the provisional president of the Republic of China in favor of Yuan Shikai if Yuan Shikai would remove the Qing emperor from power and support the Republic of China. Yuan Shikai persuaded the Qing emperor Puyi to abdicate, and he did so in February of 1912. In accordance with their agreement, Sun Yat-sen resigned, and in March of 1912, Yuan Shikai was chosen and sworn in by the Republican revolutionaries as the first president of the Republic of China. He appointed Sun Yat-sen to the directorship of railway development. The beginning of Yuan Shikai's presidency also begins the Beiyang Warlord Period, or simply the First Republic of China, with its official capital in Peking. It would last until 1928. The nation's capital was moved from, was moved from Nanjing to, to Peking. A national election was planned for the autumn of 1912 to elect a provisional national assembly. That body was to draft a new constitution. Between the years 1910 to 1920 is also known as the New Culture Movement in China. People, understandingly, wanted to create new everything. Much of the old traditional Chinese beliefs and relationships were being questioned. New ideas were introduced, freely discussed, particularly Western ones. When the 1911 revolution broke out, 
Japan was concerned with preserving her interest in China, particularly in Manchuria. Remember, Japan had obtained those interests from Russia following Japan's victory in the 1904-1905 Russo-Japanese War. Japan had agreements with the Qing government over those interests in Manchuria. So, the imminent collapse of the Qing dynasty worried Japan. The revolutionaries in China were an unknown element to Japan, and Japan had good reasons to worry. One, her interests in Manchuria would be in jeopardy with a new government in China. Two, a Chinese republic might draw global attention to Japan's own monarchy. Japan wanted to support the existing Qing government, or at least support the concept of it becoming a constitutional monarchy. So Japan requested its ally, England, to join her in a military intervention to help the Qing government. England declined. You see, England was already supporting the Chinese revolutionaries in China. And the reason for that is that they controlled the parts of China where the English interests were. And the English, of course, did not want to risk alienating those revolutionaries. Japan dropped the idea of intervention. I want to circle back a bit to my discussion of foreign influence. I had mentioned leaseholds. Leaseholds were another form of foreign influence in China during the Manchu dynasty. There were far fewer in number than there were treaty ports, but would be consequential nonetheless. One was in Shandong province. Its seaport, the key. The Germans had that leasehold. And they had a 99-year arrangement going back to 1898. It was awarded to Germany for its part in the triple intervention against Japan in the mid-1890s. Another leasehold was in Liaoning province in Manchuria. Originally, the Russians held it, but then lost it to the Japanese. Hong Kong and the English was another leasehold. China had no sovereignty in the leaseholds. The leaseholds were granted for a specific purpose, such as mining or farming or shipping. On the eve of the 1911 revolution, China's situation was profoundly affected by the treaty ports and the leaseholds. These arrangements could not be ignored by the Chinese revolutionaries, making the nationalist situation unclear and uncertain. The 1911 revolution is an ambiguity as to what it meant for the future of China. It is not clear who the winner was from the collapse of the Qing dynasty. As we will learn, the later 1913 and 1916 uprisings proved that the 1912 Republic of China arrangement was not stable. It is true 
that the 1911-1912 revolutions did accomplish two goals, both momentous. The end of the imperial dynasty and the establishment of a republic, imperfect and tenuous as it was. On the other hand, settling for Yuan Shikai, a former Qing official with no established revolutionary or republican bona fides, was an uneasy and risky footing to place the nation. Yuan Shikai's refusal to leave Peking to receive the presidency in Nanjing should have been an early warning. Additionally, some of the outlying areas of China, Mongolia and Tibet, distrusted Yuan Shikai. These areas used the Qing government collapse as a reason for severing ties to China. Furthermore, many Chinese provinces were not strongly committed entities in the revolution's fervor. Nevertheless, Yuan Shikai did swear in as the president of the new Republic of China. Yuan Shikai was always uneasy himself about the revolution as it ran counter to his imperial autocratic background and influence. Demonstrating his uneasiness, he supported only a fraction of the secondary issues that were brought by the nationalists. Soon after Yuan Shikai was sworn in, he quickly attacked and criticized the provisional government, the political parties, and their power. Kuomintang and Yuan Shikai soon became enemies. Yuan Shikai believed the revolutionaries or the nationalists stood in his way to what he believed was China's needed direction. Remember, he was an autocrat at heart. He expressed the view that China needed a strong national government, and he was not alone in those sentiments. He and others were horrified by the practice of federalism and the idea that power had to be shared with provincial or local governments. Yuan Shikai, a practical man, however, acquiesced early on in the Republican ideals. He latched on to Republican ideals only after he realized there was no other direction. By July of 1912, he was publicly requesting cooperation from the provinces, and the election in early 1913 would be critical. However, a battle was brewing, pitting Yuan Shikai against the Nationalist. In the next episode, I continue with the early period. This period so much shaped the events and people that would come for many, many years. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.